the second half of a baseball season unlike any before it begins today. Plus, we have a great interview with a Premier League and U.S. men's national team player. It's Thursday, July 13th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. MLB instituted transformative new rules this year, plus we've had some recent news off the field. Joining me to break it all down is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. So let's start with the new rules. What have been the impacts? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of on-the-field stuff, but especially off the field, what, what have we seen? Oh, it's been huge. So we had a trio of big new rules come in. We had a new pitch clock, a a ban on extreme defensive shifts and larger bases. And the net result of that has been much uh, faster and more briskly paced games. The average game time is down by 26 minutes from a year ago and just more offense and more action. And it's really been interesting because we've seen baseball try, the league try a lot of things over the years to try to address their average game time issue, their action on the field issue. And the results have really been minimal uh, at best. And this is one where it just really, really worked. And, And what we're seeing then as a result are more fans and younger fans. Uh, attendance is up by about 8%, and the projection is that number is going to hold for the rest of the season, and it's going to be the best year in, a, in about a half decade, going back to pre-COVID times and reversing a long slide at the gate. And the average uh, or the median age of uh, your uh, typical MLB ticket buyer, we're down to 43. That number was 46 last year and 49 in 2019. So more fans and younger fans as they're embracing this quicker, more action-filled style of baseball. Yeah, I mean, just a resounding success, basically, in in every possible way. And those 26 minutes we're cutting – that's all downtime. It's just the pitcher standing around, the batter adjusting their gloves, whatever, all that stuff. And yeah, we're seeing more stolen bases. Obviously, we had that Ellie De La Cruz moment where he stole second, third, and home in a single at bat, which was just amazing. Uh, something that you probably wouldn't see last year even. So yeah, it's, it's a better product in so many ways. Without question. And it really showcases the athleticism of the players that for a long time you had sort of a an image of a lumbering beer league softball player. And then to say this is somebody who played beer league softball for a number of years. Uh, but now you're really highlighting um speed, athleticism, baseball smarts, all those kinds of things, and highlighting a, a really round well-rounded set of skills that players need to have to excel at this level. I want to jump to on the field results for a moment. So it's been a, a mixed picture for some big spending teams. The new CBA kind of not exactly opened the floodgates, will open the floodgates a little wider for teams like the Mets, the Padres, the Yankees to just start throwing even more money around. But not all of that has been successful. So, um, yeah, what, what are we seeing in the standings? We're seeing an inversion of traditional linkages between payroll spending and on-field success, the likes of which I've never seen. Really, for a generation, uh, the rule was pretty solid that if you spent a lot of money, your chances of making the playoffs were greatly enhanced. And there's been, obviously, year to year, a few outliers, but now things are being just fundamentally, again, inverted in a way I've never seen. As we sit here at the All-Star break, the number one, two, three and six teams in payroll spending are out of the playoffs and four of the bottom six are in. 
And whether that holds, obviously, we've got a half season of play to uh, still go through here. But again, that sort of level of inversion, really unprecedented. Yeah. And I wonder if that'll cool off talks for now. I mean, you know, again, we do have a half season left of, you know, there have been some rumblings that baseball wants a salary cap. I mean, the owners always want a salary cap to save themselves from themselves, I guess. But um, but I wonder if, yeah, the, the Mets and Padres finish out of the playoffs and the Orioles and Rays and Reds finish in. I wonder if, if people uh, cool off on that for a little bit. Maybe. I mean, it, the, the fundamental thing to remember is that for all the talk that we hear year after year, bargaining round after bargaining round of a salary cap and or a salary floor, these things all have to be collectively bargained with the Players Association. Uh, this is one of the strongest unions in the entire country, regardless of industry. And they've been pretty clear that they don't want these kind of potential salary restraints, that they they very much still believe in an open market system. Uh, they've done very well by it. And they've get, really got a leg to stand on that team competitiveness really relies on a whole bunch of other factors besides just necessarily writing the biggest check. Um, so, so again, we're going to, I think continue to see a bit of a status quo in that sense that, you know, cap and or floor, I don't think is going to happen. Um, union doesn't want it. Um, but there may be other creative ways, you know, like we see with the various levels of luxury tax to have some restraints along the margins. But again, we're still talking about the the fundamental open market system. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree on that. Let's hit a couple quick news items. Very intriguing one from this week. The Oakland mayor, Sheng Tao, met with MLB commissioner Rob Manfred. How did that news strike you? Surprising and not surprising in the sense that, um, yes, you've got a situation where the mayor is still trying to uh, get a deal done when Rob Manfred, the lead commissioner, has been very consistently and clearly speaking about Oakland in a stadium deal in the past tense. That is, you know, the train is leaving the station for Las Vegas, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, So in that sense, kind of odd, uh, but also... League commissioners need to keep open lines of communication with civic leaders at all times. You never know what they're going to need them for. And it's usually a lot, whether it be cooperation on special events, some other facility related thing, legislative help on a um, a regulatory type issue that uh, a league always needs help from the uh, politicians in their respective markets. And Oakland is still a market in the league, certainly through at least next year. Uh, so keeping that dialogue going is a really smart play by Rob Manfred because just shutting the door and saying, I'm not never going to talk to you about anything, that's just not going to be a good way to go forward. So the Yankees finally signed a deal for their jersey patch with Star Insurance, not exactly a household name. Any particular feelings on on this deal? So it's sort of a weird thing for me. I I grew up a Yankee fan, upstate New York. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, never thought that we, you know, in my wildest dreams, we'd be seeing a corporate patch on the sleeve on on those iconic pinstripes. But that's where the obviously the the whole industry is going. Europe's been there for a long time. Uh, Many of the U.S. leagues are there now. MLS has been doing it for a long time. Now we've got basketball and hockey as well. Baseball starting up this year. Yankees have been in the market since last summer trying to do this. So we knew a deal was going to come and we knew it was going to be for big money. But the Yankees are such an iconic 
big brand that the expectation by me and a whole bunch of other people were, was that it was going to be with some big prominent luxury brand and to have this sort of relatively unknown commercial insurance company get the rights. Um, it seems at least at first blush an odd fit. What's also odd is that nobody involved directly involved with this deal wants to talk about it. You do a $200 million commercial deal, the people involved usually want to shout it from the rooftops. But right now, everybody's closing ranks. And I think it's because they know that this deal writ large is pretty unpopular. Yeah, it does feel a little embarrassing. You know, no offense to Star Insurance, I guess. Um, lastly, before we go, let's just have a little fun and predict what um, you know, ballpark or even just the first digit you think that Shohei Otani, assuming, let's say, let's assume he's going to finish the year healthy, uh, what kind of contract do you think he's looking at uh, once he signs with a new team or with the Angels, I guess? Complete speculation, but I'll go you uh, uh, one better here. I am thinking about five hundred and fifty to five hundred and seventy-five million dollars to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, that that is a team, thanks to its big time Warner deal, that still holds in amid all the changes in the television business. Uh, th- this is a team very well uh, capitalized and and well resourced to be able to sign a record setting deal like this. So I'm I'm thinking Otani to the Dodgers for more than a half billion dollars. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Up next, Tim Ream has a destroyed career in the Premier League, and last year he had a huge season that vaulted him onto the men's national team and a starting position in the World Cup. As he embarks on a new season with Fulham, he's launching a show with the premier soccer media network, Men in Blazers. I spoke to him about all of that and more, and we'll have that conversation next. All right, very excited to be joined now by Tim Ream, a center back for Fulham and the U.S. men's national team. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me, Owen. So um, let's start with uh, some recent news that you're making. On Tuesday, Men and Blazers announced that you're joining their network with a new show with broadcasters Steve Schlanger called The American Dream. Congrats on that. What's the show all about? Yeah, it started as um, just two guys from St. Louis um, chatting about about soccer and, and the game and, and different kind of current events that are going on. And um, it's it's morphed into having having guests on to, to talk about careers and and their paths and um, interesting things that are going on in in their lives. So um, you know we've we've been in in discussion with uh, Men and Blazers for for a couple months now, and um, it seemed like a the right time going into a new a new season to to you know jump on board with them and um, rebrand, but but continue the same kind of same kind of theme. Um, you know, telling. Given a behind-the-scenes look from a, a from a player's perspective, um, which is me, um, but then also bringing on uh, bringing on teammates and friends and, and other people that I've that I've been able to meet through uh, through playing the the game. Yeah, it should be fun. Obviously, you're not the only athlete with a podcast, but how do you fit that in along with you know everything else you're doing? Um, I do it after the kids go to bed and, and it's quiet and <laughs> I have, I have an hour to, to breathe. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's fun. You know, it's, um, listen, life is, is about time management. Um, yeah. and it's something that, that I've had to do, you know, from, from my time at, in college to, to now. So, um, it's, it's finding, finding an hour here, an hour there to, to, you know, do a show and, um, you know, it's it's something that I've come to to really enjoy doing, and and something that you know I'm really looking forward to uh, to continuing on. 
So you had this huge comeback season in the Premier League last year, led to this, you know, to getting a starting spot on the men's national team at the World Cup. What has this past year meant to you in the scope of your career? Um, I think it's been the most fun, uh, been the most exciting. Um, but it's for me, I look at it as just kind of another another step, right? And and it's for me, success is is defined what I think it is for, for me personally. And, you know, last year was successful. The season before that was successful. The season before that wasn't, but, um, yeah, I'd say it's, it's, it's meant the most because it, it was at the, the, the perfect time to be playing the way I was playing. Um, and, and it allowed me to, to achieve getting to a world cup and playing in a world cup and, and, you know, completing what was a, a dream as, as a, as a little boy. Um, you know, to, to have that dream come true is, you know, at, at age 35 is, is a pretty, pretty unique experience, pretty cool story. Um, and, and something that, you know, my kids being older can share in that experience. And that for me was, was everything, you know, everything else didn't matter, but the, the fact that they could share in that with me, um, and, and my wife was, you know, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, no, that's fantastic. Um, so this uh, this generation of uh, on the men's national team often gets called the golden generation. What's it like to you know be you know a leader of that team and and you know go to this this hyped up World Cup and you know obviously we're looking toward the the next one in the states. You know what's it like to kind of you know be a part of this group? Yeah, I mean it's it's a young group. Um, I believe I've been, I've been dubbed the, the grandpa of, of the group, um, which, you know what, that's fine with me as, as long as the grandpa is keeping up with the, you know, the 20, 21, 22 year olds. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be labeled that, but it's, it's cool. It, it's, it's neat to see this. And I've been around for, for 12 years with, with the program. So it's, it's, it's really, uh, really neat to see this, this group kind of come through. Um, you hear a lot about them when, when, you know, in 2017, 2018, that this, this generation of players and this group of players is, is going to come through and to be able to, to work alongside them and train alongside them and, and be a part of, of kind of the culture and, and the youthfulness that they've brought into, into the program. Um, it's been a, it's been a unique experience and, and one that I've enjoyed, you know, being that, that older, that older guy who has the, the experience who, who can help guys through, you know, through, through a lot of things and, and through a lot of experiences. And, um, yeah, just being a part of it is, you know, is, is, is special to me. Um, because I know, you know, not everybody gets, gets a chance to, to be a part of something, um, you know, a part of a, a national team. And, and for me to be a part of many national teams is, you know, is, is incredible. Um, and, and something, like I said, I really enjoy, I, I enjoy being around the guys. They, they, um, they help me feel a lot younger than I, than I am, um, which is always nice. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the men's and women's national teams have this unique arrangement where you split your winnings pays improving on the women's side, but it's still pretty far from the men's side. How does it feel to be part of this as someone, you know, who might come away with less money because of this arrangement than you otherwise would? Um, I don't think it was, it wasn't about the money. Um, for, for me playing the game and, and doing what, what I do is, is never been about about the money. Is it, is it great? Of course it is. Um, did we, did we give something up? Of course we did. But, um, for, for me, it's, I don't look at it as, as giving something up. I, I look at it as we've, we've set a precedent. We've, we've done something historical. We've, you know, we've worked alongside the, the women to, to make sure that, um, 
you know, both groups, men and women, um, were, were paid equally. And I think that's, that's the important point here. Not, not the money that was, was left on the table or the money that was lost. Um, it's, it's the fact that both teams get to do something and together, um, we get to go in on something together, uh, and we get to, to push that forward. Um, and, and hopefully more and more, you know, more and more teams, more and more, you know, countries, more and more federations do that going forward. But, you know, like I said, to, to take that step, I think is, is important for, for, you know, everybody to, to understand where we want, you know, the, the togetherness and where we want U.S. soccer and, and the men and women to, to go is, in, and that's in the same direction. Hopping topics a little bit. We learned this week that the USL is set to vote on implementing promotion and relegation, which would be a first for U.S. league, obviously. Um, and, you know, your team Fulham has gone back and forth in your, your time there you know, promoting and, and relegating. How do you think a, you know, a true pyramid system in America would affect American soccer? Um, I think to start it in the USL is a, is a good kind of a, a good, maybe jumping off point. I think with, with teams being valued, not that they're, they're worse or better, or just the, the value of teams um, being a little bit less. I think it, they, they already have, a USL one and a USL two, right? So I think it it helps in in that sense. They they have two separate kind of divisions that that they can they can they can work with. Um, I think it'll be a if they if it passes. I think it'll be a a pretty cool experiment. Um, I mean, I'm all for obviously promotion or relegation. I think it 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 puts a lot of pressure on on players, and and when you have pressure, that's that's when you see who can who can handle things and who can't. Um, so I think it's, like I said, I think it's a, a could be a, a very good thing, um, and a very good experiment to, to see how it would work. And if, if, if teams and, and owners are, are willing to do it. And I think if you, you start lower and, and, you know, you kind of implement it from a, a lower league standpoint, um, and, and create kind of a, a good foundation, um, and an understanding of what, what it would entail, um, the consequences that it would entail as well. Um, it, it, it makes for, for exciting, uh, exciting reading. Um, and, and again, we don't get to vote, so we can't, we can't say so, but it'll be interesting if it passes. I think, I think a lot of people will be, uh, will be, you know, with, with one eye on, on how it goes. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of the drama, maybe the biggest drama in the Premier League, at least this last year, was in the bottom of the standings, or it's like who's in, who's out. Like we know Man City is gonna gonna take, you know, is at the top, but yeah, who's who's gonna get promoted, who's gonna get relegated? Um, and, and it's like that every year, and and that puts extra pressure on players. Uh, I don't think uh, people probably don't realize how much, you know, when you're when you're in and around that that situation, how much extra pressure there is. Um, and so, yeah, it'll, it, it the, the storylines and the, the, the craziness of it all and, and the, the interesting, you know, parts and the, the pressure come from those, those teams that are potentially being promoted or the teams that are, are really close to relegation. Um, and that's where you, like I said, that's where you get to, to, to see who has what it takes and, and who, who maybe, uh, you know, might crumble. Yeah. And I, I feel like the premier league's in this very interesting place where, you know, when they started, it was more like the USL where you know, the, the team values weren't hugely different and getting promoted obviously was good, but it didn't mean this enormous spike in your, your revenue that it does now. Um, whereas now it's sort of, you know, it's hard to be those, those teams on the cusp where you don't know if next year you're going to get all that premier league media revenue or, you know, a, a much smaller slice in the championship 
Champions League. Um, so yeah, much easier to start when you're when you're the USL right now or when you're the Premier League 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great example because you, you're right. I mean, the, the money is crazy now, and um, you never know. Who, who knows if it does get implemented? Um, you know, TV revenues because of the excitement. There there may be more. You know, it, it could end up. You know, where you have the the media um, and the TV rights just start to to spike because um, I'll tell you what, there's there's still a lot of guys who would would go over and, and play in, in the in the MLS and, and the States, um, you know, if if that kind of situation were, were to come about. Uh, you're involved with a, a mental health program through virtual soccer schools, uh, working with kids. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that started during um, during COVID, um, that dreaded period where we were all in lockdown and um, not uh, not sure what to do with ourselves. Um, yeah, or, and, your and, yeah. or your kids. Or your kids. Pulling your hair out or growing your hair, um, in, in my case, and um, we just realized there was there was this kind of uh, I wouldn't even say like gap in the market, but there was there was no longer interactions between um, professional, you know, athletes and kids at at the the stadiums. So you didn't there's there's that's the one thing you kind of always look forward to before and after games is seeing seeing kids out there having little conversations and and there. There was none of that going on because of because of COVID, because we were playing behind closed doors, and um, so we we decided, why don't we go and and go into the the kids' classrooms? Why don't we why don't we take it over over Zoom or you know whatever virtual kind of platform you want to you want to you know use um, and and reach out to schools and and see if they were interested in in discussing, but and also interested in you know having a perspective of people who have been in their, in their shoes, right. And gone to school. Um, but then also still deal with, with mental health issues, anxiety, nervousness, pressure, um, and, and what, what it's taken for, for us to get through those things and, and what has helped us, um, on that journey. So yeah, just, just speaking to kids, um, is, has been, has been really, uh, really fulfilling. Um, I will say, you know, it's, it's not just, uh, not just something that the kids, the, you know, they, they get out of it. You know, I, every, every time we come off a call, um, any guests we have on there, they're like, wow, that was, you know, really great. And, and, you know, I feel really good, um, you know, being able to, to give back and, and answer kids' questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was such a hard time in so many ways, but, um, it was, it was you know, it was great to see how people stepped up and, you know, made contributions that they could, a couple of quick rapid fire ones before we let you go. Um, favorite moment you've had on the field? Uh, World Cup playing that, that first World Cup game. Um, best player a casual soccer fan probably hasn't heard of? Probably Lewis Dunk. Um, if you're going to go into business with someone on the men's national team, who would you feel comfortable joining up with? Most of the guys, I think, but I, I, I'd probably say Matt Turner the most. Cool. Tim Ream, thanks so much for joining us on the show. No problem. That is it for today. Say hi to us on Twitter at FOS underscore today or hit me up at Owen Poindexter. Let me know what you think about the show. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.